Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Patients undergoing cancer treatment are often at risk for reactivation of latent viral infections. Common viral infections of concern include cytomegalovirus, herpes simplex virus, varicella zoster virus, and hepatitis B. Antiviral prophylaxis is utilized based on risk factors to minimize reactivation and is supported by multiple evidence-based guidelines. Pharmacist Abdullah Al-Ajmi will provide an overview of the mechanism of viral reactivation risk factors for reactivation, and strategies used to minimize these risks in patients with cancer. Again, my name is Abdul Ajmi. I'm going to be talking about going viral. What do I mean by that? It's basically patients with cancer treatment are at high risk of viral infection reactivation. And in this group specifically, we're worried about worse outcomes. And with viral infection reactivations, what happens is patients are usually faced with complications like increased risk of organ damage, uh, increased mortality rates. And for chemo, for cancer patients specifically, there is also risk of uh, treatment uh, delays, and which is an important thing to think about with our patients. So thinking about that perspective, it's really important for us to know uh, went the wrong way. Okay, it's really important for us to know the mechanism of uh, viral infection reactivations, and then also identify characteristics that are really uh, linked to the reactivation process, and then risk factors that are associated with that, especially in patients with cancer. And then after understanding the risk factors associated with this, we need to look at areas where we can minimize the risk overall, whether it's through screening or uh, prophylaxis measures, which are we're gonna be talking about throughout the presentation. So to begin with, there are so many viral infections that are of concern. And if you look at the NCCN guideline, what they have listed uh, as, as virus of concerns are listed here in these slides. For example, we have cytomegalovirus, uh, varicella zoster, herpes simplex virus, and hepatitis B. And there is others too. But for the sake of the time allowed for this presentation and the scope of this presentation, we're going to be focusing mostly on hepatitis B virus. Okay. So to understand the mechanism, we need to understand how the virus infects the body. And uh, the hepatitis B virus here goes into the hepatocytes through these channels that call NTC, NTCP receptors. What's in, it's inside the hepatocytes it basically releases its DNA and the DNA gets stabilized in this form that's called covalently closed uh, circular DNA. And this is a very important piece in the process. When the virus have established this kind of uh, DNA form, it's able to live in a latent phase and it becomes, uh, it, it's allowed itself to be re uh, reactivated later once patients go through any immune suppression phase. But in a normal case where the process of virus goes through its normal cycle. It goes into the normal replication process and uh, our immune system is able to actually suppress that replication and eliminate the virus from the body. 
but as you guys can see in the slides, we have certain targets set or certain immune uh, functions that work in this process where elimination of the virus is possible, but our normal immune system is not able to fully eradicate this covalently closed circular DNA. So when the virus is established, this is the main component that allows it to reactivate. And thinking about our cancer patients, we give them the indications that are immunosuppressive through multiple of these targets that you can see in the slides. So when this happens, then uh, reactivation reoccurs. And then moving on to also understand how our patients present and their overall picture, there are these certain uh, serological markers that patients can present with uh, when they have an infection of uh, hepatitis B. And I'm gonna go through them in, in detail, but for example, there's different definitions. So I have a patient who is not infected, so it's completely negative in presentation. And then we have patients who are immune. When we talk about immunity, that means that patient has received a vaccine. The vaccine can be shown like in, the, in labs where a patient have an surface antibody positivity, but they don't have any other uh, serological marker. Patients who were infected in the past, that changes from, uh, from an active infection to a more latent and result phase. And then the patient will have still the, uh, core the core antigen positivity, but then also they have a surface antibody. So it indicates that there was an infection at certain at certain point that was resolved. And they can also have a false positive that might show that they don't have a surface antigen, but there was also a core antigen positive there. So these are all important factors to consider. And then how we differentiate patients who are uh, currently on an active infection versus a chronic one. So when I talk about active, I mean an acute phase, Within acute phase, usually they have a surface antigen positive and a core, antigen, a core antibody, uh, core antigen positive too, which is a key component. And then they have an IgM anti, antibody positive. So in that case, patients are going through an active replication. There is an increase in viral load. Uh, that's an acute phase of infection. Chronic infection, they are missing that IgM component. So you can have patients who are infected but still having a surface antigen positive but they are not in an acute phase. And this uh, can increase or further when we have immune suppression in that, uh, in that stage. So the key takeaways from this slide is patients who are at risk of reactivation, those are the patients with the core, core antigen positivity. So as you can see uh, from the, fourth, the, third, the second line all the way to the fourth line, these are all at risk of reactivations. And then how do we define the reactivation of viral infections or hepatitis B? This can be in, separated in two different categories. Patients with an active infection, so like a more of a chronic phase where they don't have a high viral load. What we look for is their change in viral load from baseline to two, uh, two log higher or increase from undetectable to 1,000 uh, viral load higher or more than 10,000. Patients who don't have a surface antigen, so they don't, they don't have an active infection at this point, uh, we look for two detectable DNAs. So when we talk about DNA, we talk about viral replication. And then we also think about seroconversion. So they change from a surface antigen negative to a positive. And then there's also the hepatitis flare, where those patients, when they change from a, a negative to a positive, 
they also go through a flare phase when there's also an increase in their liver function. So like ALT jumped for more than three times at the levels. That's important to know because understanding how the patients present, we can also consider the risk rate for uh, reactivation. Patients with uh, surface antigen positive have a higher rate of uh, reactivation rates, can go up to 53%. And then patients with surface antigen negative, it can be as low as 8%. So as you can see that risk difference in presentation uh, also tells us like how, how should we consider the patients in terms of risk stratification, which we're gonna talk about in more detail later. Stages of HPV reactivation. So mm -hmm. when we give patients chemotherapy, talking about the reactivation process, uh, it all is very interesting to see how patients present and then we understand the risk. But then what happens when patients go through uh, immunosuppression phase after chemotherapy? And as you can see in the stages here in front of you, first patients receive chemotherapy as a number of cycles and then they get immune suppressed, and then you can see their hepatitis B viral DNA starts to increase. That indicates to us that there's an active process of replication going on, and the virus is able to actually uh, like activate itself and continue to replicate. After a few months, you start seeing uh, transition into more of a liver damage with uh, ALT increase, and then total bilirubin increase as well. And after a while, patients start to spontaneously recover from the infection. They can also recover after receiving a hepatitis B treatment, but some patients will also progress to liver failure. This is why it's so important for us to understand the risk factors and to help prevent those as much as possible to minimize that worse outcomes when we talk about liver failure and potentially mortality. What does that mean for our uh, immunosuppressed patients who are on cancer treatment? There is going to be uh, chemotherapy interruption. There's been multiple studies that showed that actually patients who end up with a viral infection reactivations post-chemotherapy, they get their, uh, uh, they get significantly uh, higher rates of uh, interruptions of, of their chemotherapy overall. There's one study actually found a difference of 70% between patients who got reactivation versus patients who did not. There's also a risk of liver injury. It's around 2% has been reported. We also have a risk of acute liver failure and mortality as well. The mortality here has been reported for two to 3%, 2.3%, uh, but other references might report it as higher too. So it just depends on where you look at that for information, but all these factors are something to consider with our patients. Leading us to our first, uh, first question. Uh, the question is, which of the following allows for reactivation of hepatitis B? Uh, A, presence of the CCC DNA, which acts as a reservoir for hepatitis B reactivation. Hepatitis B, enter, hepatitis B virus enters the hepatocytes via the NTCP receptors. And then CD4 T cells target hepatitis B virus infected cells to stimulate replication. Immune cells eliminate circulating hepatitis B virus. All right, I'm seeing uh, answers from between A and B. It looks like B. Oh, I'm getting more numbers. But the majority looks like they're uh, choosing B. So the right answer here is A. So remember when we talked about the CCC DNA phase is when the virus is allowed to remain uh, or is able to remain dormant and uh, go into that reactivation phase later when there's immune suppression. The second answer B is, is correct as a step, but is not a key component for a reactivation. So in this case, it's not the most appropriate answer. 
answer C when we talk about uh, CD4 T cells targeting hepatitis P uh, infected cells stimulate replication. It's actually the opposite. They suppress replication in this group. And then the last answer, the immune cells eliminating hepatitis, P, hepatitis circulating vi uh, virus. That's uh, a true statement, but it also has nothing to do with the reactivation process. And uh, I see the answer has changed to A, so everybody can like <laughs> So knowing this information is very important for us to like now understand how do these patients uh, or like how do they present and when we identify them to be a higher versus lower risk. So there is there has been multiple studies that looked at baseline serological pictures or characteristics that patient had when they presented. And one of them was by Yang and colleagues. They looked at baseline values of uh, surface core antigen and, uh, and uh, surface antibody in those patients. And as looking at them as predictors for the outcomes, their inclusion criteria was patients with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma who were on a rituximab-based uh, treatment, RCHOP. And then they included uh, around 197 patients. Among those patients, there was 94 reactivations occurring. And then when they further stratified the levels of the baseline levels of these serological factors, they saw that the core antigen level being high at baseline, plus having a low surface an antibody is a predictor of a high rate for reactivation. In addition to that, the other conclusion was patients being on rituximab uh, is also a high risk, which we we're gonna describe further. So now we know these two surgical factors to be uh, associated with the risk of reactivation. The second study by Chen and colleagues did the same thing where they also looked at serological factors, but this time it was patients also on rituximab who are treated for uh, rheumatoid arthritis. They were not on prophylaxis and the, the patient's population they included were around 303. And out of those patients, there was 25% uh, uh, in the surface antigen negative group that had the reactivation rate. And then patients who have this surface antibody positive, sorry, uh, were 5% were uh, who developed reactivations. So what they concluded from this study is that the surface antibody presence was associated with lower rates of reactivation. It's actually one of the conclusion points is where the presence of the surface antibody is considered protective in this case. And the third study by Cosimoto uh, and colleagues, they looked at further quantifying the risk of reactivation in those patients. They had a similar group when they looked at non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patients who were receiving anti-CD20. And those patients had at baseline surface antigen negative and core anti antigen positive, and also had undetectable DNA. So there was not an active uh, viral, high viral load or high infective process, but they also allowed for patients with unquantifiable DNA. So this wasn't quantified, could be positive, they included them. What they, what they found is in 326 patients, among which there was some of them on prophylaxis, that uh, prophylaxis antiviral, first of all, significantly reduced rates of uh, reactivation. And those who did not receive reactivation, there was around 11% reactivation rates. 3% of those had uh, positive DNA at, at baseline. So few things uh, that came out of that study 
One, preemptive uh, prophylaxis is important to minimize the risk of reactivation. The other thing is the presence uh, of a positive DNA, uh, even if it was not quantifiable, was associated with higher risk. They also looked at, they, did the, uh, they ran a univariate and multivariate analysis where they found that patient age, so increased by, by decade, 10 years older, for example, compared to the other patient populations was associated with high risk. Certain types of cancers, like in the Hodgkin lymphoma group, there is a DLBCL or diffuse large, cell, large B cell lymphoma were at high risk. And then, as I mentioned, the detectable DNA. So taking all of this into consideration, and there's also other factors published in the literature, the type of cancer the patient has plays a big role of, in case of reactivation risk. Other than that, patients who receive uh, stem cell transplant are at high risk. We also talked about patients having a positive uh, surface antigen and also an active replication of the virus. So positive DNA was associated with high risk. Pre-existing liver damage can also increase the risk for these patients. And then the big thing is the type of chemotherapy. We talked about rituximab a lot already. And as you guys can imagine, that's one of the drugs that are considered high risk. And this class of drugs have a black box warning for hepatitis B reactivation. And then also age was identified as high risk. So understanding that, that information, we can look at those patients right now, how risk criteria is stratified. So the American Gastroenterology uh, Association had this stratification criteria. If you look at different guidelines, there is different ones. But this one had a breakdown of how they are presenting by the serology picture, and then also what kind of medications they're taking. So as we said, high-risk criteria, positive surface antigen or positive uh, antigen core, these two are considered high-risk criteria when they're presenting together. If the antigen is negative, then uh, we consider that not as high-risk. But if you look at the left side of the screen, patients with a B-cell depleting drug like rituximab are automatically put in the high-risk criteria, even if they have a negative surface antigen. But on the other hand, in, to compare with that, patients who are receiving a high dose of prednisone or those who are on an anthracycline are considered high-risk if they meet the criteria for the serological picture. And then the moderate risk group we have, uh, there's further stratification there. Patients who receive certain drugs like the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, their serological uh, picture can be either with a positive surface antigen or a negative one. And the steroids is very interesting because it's all dependent on how they present serologically. So we talked to the previous slide, patients with positive surface antigen and high dose steroid are high risk. But when you look here, we have same patients, but low dose steroids, moderate risk. If a negative service antigen occurs with a high dose steroid, that's a moderate risk. It's a little bit confusing, but think about it from how they present serologically plus the medication they're on and the dose. The last that's considered the, the lowest group, which is less than 1% risk. And here we have your traditional immunosuppressant drugs like methotrexate, and then uh, other drugs like steroids, who are, which when given in a different uh, formulation like interocular and uh, patients thinking about a negative surface antigen with a low dose steroids, they fall into the low risk criteria.
So when we take this whole uh, picture together, now we understand that certain drugs like rituximab or anti-CD20 automatically a high risk category presenting with a, a surface antigen positive and a surface uh, core antigen positive is also considered high risk. And then we further stratify that based on the medication, the dose, the duration, like in case of the corticosteroids. And to also touch further on the mechanism of uh, immune suppression of these drugs. So the anti-CD20, which we talked about a lot already, uh, they cause immune suppression by causing C C B cell depletion. Anthracyclines, or like, for example, doxorubicin, that we use in a lot of our chemotherapy drugs, promotes hepatitis B virus replication. It's through stimulating like a certain gene that allows for this process to occur. Corticosteroids, they act by causing T-cell depletion. And as, uh, as a side mechanism also, they promote viral replication through that. Immune checkpoint inhibitors, how they promote uh, reactivation is reported to be through their, their immune-related adverse events. So when they stimulate the immune response as, as an adverse event of that, it's been reported that reactivation occurs. So this leads us to our second question. Which of the following patients is at highest risk of hepatitis B reactivation? Is it a 56 years old female with acute lymphoblastic leukemia on interthecal mutrixate? Is it a 65 years old male with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and rituximab? 53 years old male on prednisone, five milligrams daily for two weeks? or 60 years old female with bladder cancer on an immune checkpoint inhibitor? It seems like everybody is convinced that answer is B. No one's changing their mind. So that's correct. Uh, the first answer, when we said methotrexate, that falls into the low-risk category. Answer B is uh, correct when we think about rituximab, it's the high-risk criteria. Answer C, falls into more of that moderate risk versus low risk. It depends on how the patient presents serologically. So we can ask for more information in that case if we want to determine that. And then answer D, we have the immune checkpoint inhibitors that are listed as moderate. So as you can see, everybody understands that uh, rituximab or like NTCD20 is a high-risk group. And then also types of cancer like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is associated with the use of methotrexate or sorry, tuximab is a high-risk criteria. But then that also raises the next question is like when we talk about things like prednisone in this case, when we want to talk about their risk factor based on their serology, where do we put these patients? And this is all important when we think about our management process. And in terms of management, <clears throat> uh, this is, we're going to move to the next point where how do you manage these patients? First of all, there is a screening part where we think about screening patients uh, for cancer. Do we do it prior to treatment? And for which patients do we uh, screen? And then there's also the element of a patient had an, a viral infection positive and how long do we monitor them for? And do we consider treating them with an antiviral? There's also the surveillance after the antiviral treatment, thinking about do we monitor them monthly, every six months, every 12 months, et cetera. And then patient status in terms of like vaccination. 
and the recommendation with vaccination. And this is also an interesting uh, part because we have patients who uh, are vaccinated and thinking about where we are right now and the rate of hepatitis B virus in the US, for example, it might not be as high as other countries. So that's something to consider. And all of these factors come into play when we think about institutional-based uh, policies and uh, our patients when they present to us. But uh, before we uh, continue further on that, uh, we need to decide our patients, do we give them prophylaxis or should we consider uh, treatment after they get infection, which is, I think, an interesting question to ask. So there's a study that looked at comparing uh, entecavir prophylaxis in reducing rates of reactivations in patients who are receiving rituximab versus not giving prophylaxis and only treating when they become when they have a reactivation process. What they included is a, a an arm which received entecavir a week before uh, the chemotherapy, and they continued that the, for three months after chemotherapy. Versus those patients who were a control group, did not receive antiviral with intecavir, and they just waited until they had a reactivation. Their included criteria, or the included patients, were those with a CD20 positive, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and this uh, includes all of the subtypes, so the DLBCL, follicular lymphoma, mental cell lymphoma, and uh, so small lymphocytic, uh, lymphocytic lymphoma. But patients had to receive R-CHOP regimen, which, is, uh, which includes rituximab, and had to have a surface antigen negative, a core positive, and a surface antibody can be either positive or negative. And they also had to have uh, an ALT uh, within the baseline at normal range or bilirubin also within normal range. So it's not... There is no liver failure at baseline. Their main endpoints were uh, incidence of reactivation. What they found is with Integavir group, uh, who were patients who received Integavir at, at baseline for, for prophylaxis, there was only one patient who got reactivation. And compared to the control group, there was seven patients. This study was a smaller size overall. It was around 80 patients total, but still this was considered a significant difference. And then when they looked at the cumulative uh, reactivation rates, the patient in the entecavir group that had the reactivation, it occurred later. So it's around after the 12 months mark, where the control group, they start seeing reactivations at the six months, 12 months, and the 18 months. And this was also a very significant difference between the groups. They also looked at the rate of seroconversion between patients. Uh, there's a significantly higher number in the control group and cumulative seroconversion were also higher in the control group in, at the 12 months and the 18 months mark, which tells you also that there's also the time component from when they ended up chemotherapy all the way they develop reactivation. The main takeaway here from the study is that integravir prophylaxis significantly reduced the rates of hepatitis B reactivation in those patients. And here we're talking about patients who are receiving rituximab since it's a high-risk drug. Similar study was done uh, on lamivudine, which is another antiviral that's used for hepatitis B, and comparing preemptive treatment versus uh, treat preemptive prophylaxis versus treatment, and showed similar results. Which is an important thing because we have multiple antivirals to consider. So thinking about which option is better for our patients. 
we looked at, or this study looked at, entecavir versus lamivudine. It was a retro, uh, it was a, uh, an RCT reviewed com uh, compare, comparing the efficacy of and safety of entecavir versus lamivudine. Here they had patients who received entecavir 0.5 milligrams daily, or lamivudine 100 milligrams daily for a week before chemotherapy, and continued that for six months after chemotherapy. And if you guys uh, remember, in the previous study, they did three months after chemotherapy. There is so there is already a difference in the duration they picked. But in terms of the included criteria, they include patients who are 18 years old uh, or older, patients with surface anti antigen positive, patients with DLBCL, which is uh, similar to the previous group, and then patients who were in the same regimen. And here the endpoints were hepatitis B virus reactivation, hepatitis B virus related hepatitis, and then chemotherapy interruption. What they found is Entecavir significantly had had significantly lower rates of reactivation compared to lamivudine, and hepatitis rates within Entecavir were zero compared to eight cases in the lamivudine group. And then there was also chemotherapy interruptions, which was significantly lower in the Entecavir group. And the interesting thing in the study too is that they mentioned is they did not consider other factors that we can touch on in a bit, but the main conclusion here is that entecavir had lower rates of hepatitis B virus reactivation compared to lamivudine. And one of their limitations, as I was mentioning, is they did not look at development of resistance with, with lamivudine, which is a known uh, problem with this medication that it develops resistance. So that wasn't checked in this study or wasn't tested. So that treatment failure or like reactivation that occurred could have been uh, caused by that resistance. So that's one of their biggest limitation that they found in the study. However, we also have another drug that we think about. It's uh, tenofovir. And in this case, this other study did a similar thing where they looked at tenofovir versus lamivudine. And they had a, a tenofovir arm and a lamivudine arm here. Primary endpoint was rates of reactivation and included similar patients with DLBCL received RCHOP and started uh, antiviral one week before chemotherapy. But the key difference here is the duration. They did 12 months after chemotherapy. So what they found is a similar thing where tenofovir was significantly, there was zero incidence of reactivation of the tenofovir compared to lamivudine, which is 18. So that was a, a, a massive difference. And then also time to reactivation in the lamivudine group occurred at six months for most patients. And then some patients had reactivations after the 12 months mark. So this, is, this shows that, that there is massive difference in terms of how it's been treated and the duration overall, but still tenofovir was uh, significantly better at, than lamivudine in reducing reactivation rates. So thinking about the guideline recommendation right now, since we looked at those studies, we can tell that uh, the NCCN guideline prefers entecavir as uh, one of the recommended drugs. And tenofovir is also another option. And lamivudine is considered as an alternative. And as we saw, we saw earlier from the studies, both of these drugs had better rates of prevention. And lamivudine is also reported to be associated with more rates of resistance. That's why it's fell out of favor. But if you ask about the choice between entecavir versus tenofovir, there is other consideration to consider too, 
So patient-specific risk factors like their renal function, like with tenofovir, you wouldn't use, or you would dose-adjust or switch to tenofovir alafenamide, for example, and also availability. So a lot of it is also institution-driven. But we still didn't answer the question, what duration to use. And if you look at the guidelines, as you can see, I've listed most of the guidelines here in the US, and we're going to go through them. Like the NCCN guidelines had recommendations in patients with lymphomas who are at high risk, for example, and receiving an anti-CD20 like rituximab, they recommend using prophylaxis for 12 months. And then surveillance with, two, uh, with six to 12 months post-treatment. And we also have the American Association of, of Studies of Liver Diseases. They had separate patients based on the serological picture. So surface antigen positive, core antigen, core positive, you start uh, before chemotherapy. Patients who have surface, surface antigen negative, then are they receiving rituximab or are they going into undergoing a stem cell transplant? And if they're receiving an NTC20 or rituximab, then you would give them the prophylaxis for 12 months. Other groups of patients, they recommend monitoring their liver function, viral load, and if you're giving prophylaxis, it's six months. And the uh, American Gastroenterology Society is the one that we talked about when we did the risk stratification with patients who are at high risk and receiving rituximab, similar thing, 12 months, six months for other agents, moderate risk, six months can be used. And patients who are at low risk, routine prophylaxis is not recommended. And ASCO uh, or the American Society of Clinical Oncology recommends uh, 12 months prophylaxis to everybody. And as you can see, there these majority of the guidelines lean towards a 12 months mark, especially for those who are at high risk or receiving rituximab. But while going through uh, literature, there is like no uh, strong evidence for each of these recommendations, except for the ones, the studies that we looked at and the type of follow-up that was used because we compare three different studies, different durations were used in that case. But then what about preemptively screening all, all the patients? ASCO also had another issue where they actually did, uh, they did a, a cost-effectiveness analysis here to determine, is it worth it to uh, screen all of our patients beforehand? Thinking about the fact that we talked about the rate of uh, hepatitis B virus in the US is very low. It's around 5% in the US. Most of our cases or highest rates are coming from people who come from abroad. So they considered that preemptive screening for everybody uh, is not cost-effective, but it is cost-effective when they did screening in patients who are considered high risk and taking NTCD20 drug. So overall, these are all questions that uh, that we need to be looked at, but in taking the, these guidelines into, into consideration, uh, the 12 months mark for a CD20 drug is uh, for the most part followed in most guidelines. It's leading, leading us to the last question, which of the following is true related to antiviral used, uh, antivirals used for hepatitis B reactivation in cancer? Lamovidine is associated with lower rates of hepatitis B reactivation than tenofovir. Tenofovir is associated with higher rates of uh, hepatitis B reactivation than lamovidine. Intecavir is associated with lower rates of reactivation than lamovidine. And then D, tenofovir is associated with higher rates of reactivation than intecavir. 
I'm getting 100% for C. Now it's changing. So the correct answer is C. Tecavir was associated with lower rates of, of hepatitis B reactivation than lamivudine. Answer A was not correct, as we saw in the study that tenofovir was higher, that uh, was better at re reducing reactivation rates. Tenofovir is also higher than reducing reactivation rate. This is the same answer, which is flipped. And then uh, the an answer D, tenofovir versus intecavir, in this case, uh, when observing the material, I did not find any direct comparison, so it's not a statement that we can make at this at this time. This leads us to the summary of the presentation: the hepatitis B virus uh, CCCDNA acts as a reservoir for viral reactivation, and we, as we mentioned, that's a key component that uh, hepatocytes with this uh, viral DNA are, are able to reactivate later. Risk factors used to determine the need of hepatitis B reactivation include the type of immune suppression and the type of patient's serology at presentation. Intecavir versus tenofovir can be used for hepatitis B virus reactivation prophylaxis, especially in patients with high risk disease. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.